There's a principle in life that we're going to look at this morning. It's pretty simple. That is that the more something costs you, the more you expect to get out of it. That's true, isn't it? I'm going to use the words John Deere here, Tom. <laughs> I'll just say this, that if you buy a John Deere, you pay more for it than you do for a cheaper lawnmower, but you expect to get more out of it because you pay more for it, unless you're an Alice Chalmers guy. And if you uh, go someplace and spend more on clothes, you expect them to last longer, to look better. You expect good shoes that you pay more for to feel better on your feet. You get the cheap knockoff brand of fill-in-the-blank, you get it on Amazon, they send it to you, and when it breaks the first time that you use it, you know how it is they sold it to you so cheaply, right? The IRS keeps track of how much money you make, your income, and what do you know? The more you make, the more they expect you to give. If you have ever wondered why there are some people who want the nation's flag to be respected and who want the country to do well. It may well be because this country and what we have in it has cost them. They've paid something for us to have what we have. They have given up so that it could do well, so that you and I could have something good. They've put something into it, and so they want something good to come out of it, right? We expect that in life. That is a principle that we expect in life. Amen? So why don't we expect God to expect that of us? That's the question I want to take into the 12th chapter of Luke this morning. There is a parable in Luke chapter 12, and I'd like you to get your Bibles open to that. Luke chapter 12. And I will tell you, as we open up this parable of Jesus this morning, that it's going to be something that you probably would not be the part of the Bible you'd be looking at for July the 4th weekend, but the, by the time that it's over, I think you'll see how it fits. Luke chapter 12, we're going to start reading together there in verse 42. Well, actually, verse 41, Peter says to Jesus, "'Are you telling this parable for us or for all?' Verse 42, the Lord said, Who then is the faithful and wise manager whom his master will set over his household to give them their portion of food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly, I say to you that he will set him over all his possessions. But if that servant says to himself, my master is delayed in coming and begins to beat the male and female servants and to eat and drink and get drunk. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour he does not know and he will cut him in pieces and put him with the unfaithful. And that servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will will receive a severe beating. 
But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. I want us to learn something about the master here right away. That is that the master wants servants who will live in anticipation of his return. Challenge number one of this parable is that most of us can't relate to the whole servant-master scene, can we? That's foreign to our thinking. It wasn't to Jesus' audience a foreign thing. In fact, that day as he spoke, there were probably some there who were servants themselves, quite possibly some who were there who had servants in their households. In wealthier households, there would be many servants, and there would be a ranking of authority among them. And I don't know about you, but that's not the house where I grew up. (laughs) In fact, I was the youngest of six. I was on the bottom, but it wasn't from servants. And I thought about this. Maybe some of you, it will help, to reference the series of Downton Abbey at this point. I can tell it will. It's a British TV series about a wealthy British estate in the early 1900s, steeped in protocol and propriety and rank. And in an estate like that, there was a long line of servants with status. The butler or the house steward supervised the male servants like the footmen and the valets while the housekeeper supervised the maids, and under her there was the cook who was in charge of the kitchen maids, the scullery maids, the still room maids, and on and on goes the list. So in an elaborate system of servants, there was authority, there was responsibility, there were certain freedoms. And if you're a fan of Downton Abbey, maybe that could help you appreciate this a little bit this morning. And if you're not, the rest of you are going, get on with it. first century Israel, there were wealthy households. They also had a head servant, a a steward, a house steward who managed the estate for the owner. And he would be in charge, among other things, of, of the other servants' rations. It was a position of authority. It was a position of responsibility, a position of trust. And that's some of the background that goes along with this story that Jesus told here in Luke chapter 12. And then within that hierarchy of servants, Jesus talks about some different kinds of servants in this story. First of all, there's this servant who knows his master well. He knows what it means to be a responsible servant, and he doesn't care. He lives as if he were the master. Serves himself, not his master. Serves himself, not his fellow servants. He doesn't pay attention to when the master is going to return. He's just living like it's somewhere out there, long time away. My master is delayed in coming, he says to himself. He is also the one, by the way, that the master surprises the most when he returns. 
And the language here that Jesus uses can't be softened. He says that master is going to come in a day when that servant doesn't expect it, and he will cut him to pieces. That's where we get our word dichotomy. And he'll have a place with the unbelievers. That's one kind of servant. There's another one here. He's the servant who knows what his master wants, but he's negligent. He's like the student that's gonna knows there's gonna be a test, but he doesn't get ready for it. He's like the kid at home with instructions from mom or dad who leave and say, All right, now before we get home, make sure that you feed the dog, take out the trash, and clean up your room. And he knows that his parents are coming, but he's negligent. He's not ready when the parent returns. He just knows he's gonna be busted, and he lets it slide anyway. Sure enough, when the master returns to this negligent servant, it says, Jesus says, he's punished. Now, don't get lost in the details of the parable yet. This is a servant who gets beaten with many blows. He's punished. There's the third. The third servant, he's, he's the new guy, or he's the younger guy, or something like that. And for some reason, he's not in the inner circle with these other servants. He's uninformed. Not only does he not know when the master is coming back, he's not even apparently aware of what the master wants done. You might expect that the other servants would have helped him to know or that he could have watched them and learned. But remember, servants number one and two, are they doing their job? No. Not going to learn it from them. He can't know, at least not from them, so don't get caught up again in every detail of the parable, but do understand that this servant's punishment, by comparison, is going to be light. By comparison, it's completely different from the others because the master treats them according to what he expects from them. And he expected less from this uninformed servant. Now, whenever you read a parable, you have to apply good rules of study. And one of those rules of study about parables is that you can't try to hang on every detail of the story. That's very important here. At first, this story leads a lot of people to try to figure out about hell, that there's going to be varying degrees of punishment in hell. Well, rather than try to answer that question with just this passage this morning... I'm going to take the easier route. I'd like us just to get some major themes here and get the main thing that Jesus was getting across here. Here's what I see are some major themes in this parable. First of all, the master expects his servants to live like his servants. We may not relate to a lot about servants, but I think most of us get this, don't we? The problem in the story starts when the master's servants aren't living for him. They seem to have forgotten that their purpose for where they are in their lives is to serve their master. If he gives them instructions, they're supposed to carry them out. If they're told he's going to be home by a certain time, they're supposed to have the place looking like they're ready when he comes. The broader context of this story that Jesus tells is about his return. 
If you go back up several verses, you'll see that. At this point, Jesus hasn't even left earth yet, but he's telling about his return. Chapter 12, verse 40, he says, You also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. The Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Since before I was born, there have been people out there with charts and calculations who were just sure that they had figured out the day that Jesus is going to return. And they will write books and get up and make announcements and say, get ready, here's the day. And I wonder why they worked so hard, some of them, and some still do, to give us something that God has kept from us on purpose. And he kept it from them too, by the way, because up to this point, every one of them has been wrong. God has kept the day of his return from us. Why? Why not just say, <clears throat> Earth, I'm returning on July 3rd, 2022. Get ready. I think the answer is right here in what we're looking at this morning, that he wants us to live every day in anticipation of his return. Let me ask a few questions that kind of explain that. If you have a bill that comes and it says this bill is due in six months, do you run out and pay it tomorrow? If you need to have a physical sometime this year, let's say the doctor says be sure that you get a physical in let's say 2023. Do you schedule it for January 1st, 2023? If you receive a notice from the, oh, Illinois Department of Motor Vehicles that your car needs its license renewed in two months, do you do it that day? I'm kind of hoping the answer to most of these is no. If you've got a project due at the end of the school semester, do you try to get it done in the first week of the first quarter? Let me help you with an answer to all of these. No. On the other hand, if you knew that your kids were going to come into town for a visit sometime in the next week, you would get ready for them to show up at any time, wouldn't you? And you would stay ready until they came, right? Jesus knows that for his servants to be living for him and not for themselves, they have to be living like he's going to return at any moment. Not knowing the day of Jesus' return helps us think of what he wants from us and not to live as slaves to our very human tendencies which we all tend to have and that's at least one reason why he has kept it from us that is a benefit think about it that he has given to us to help us live like we belong to him day by day he expects his servants to live like his servants Here's something else I see. One of the major themes in this story, and that is that he's going to treat servants according to what they're given. 
Now, it's clear who the master represents in this parable. That's Jesus, isn't it? He's coming back, he says, soon. And the servants in the story, well, that's people. And some know he's coming back, some know what he wants, and then there are others who don't. And there are some who don't know Jesus at all. They're all there mixed together. You know, there are still people groups around the world who have never heard of him. There are countries where being a follower of Christ will get you in trouble. There are people who are caught up in false religions where the truth is being kept from them. There are all those kinds of people in the world today who don't know. They don't really know what the master wants. They don't do what the master wants. So how will the master treat them? How can he hold them accountable? A lot of people struggle with that. Romans chapter 1, verse 20, Paul says that God's invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. You know, having a Bible isn't something that everybody experiences in the world. You and I do. But not yet, not yet does everybody have a Bible. But creation is something that everyone experiences. Living in this world, we're all experiencing that. And all around us, it speaks of God, although there's a lot about him that creation doesn't tell us. It tells everyone enough but they should at least realize, what does Paul say there in Romans 1? That there is a divine being who has eternal power. That can be clearly seen. Someone beyond ourselves, someone to whom we're responsible, that can be clearly seen. A few verses later in Romans chapter 2, verse 12, Paul says, All who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. See, if some culture doesn't have the Ten Commandments or any other part of God's written word, they still have, as a culture, some kind of accepted code of morality. Later in, in Romans 2, Paul even says, everyone has sinned, either under God's law or not. They're going to be judged based on what they have been given. The problem that you and I face and that everyone in the world faces is that all of us have at some point gone against our own moral code too. And they have gone against it. They have broken that law. So I don't see that the point of this parable is to detail how punishment is going to be given out in degrees, but rather how God is going to hold each person responsible based on what they are given. That's what Jesus uses to conclude it. Did you see those words at the end when we read it? Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. That's verse 48. That's the summary of the matter. We're going to be held responsible for what we have received. Even Spider-Man's uncle said, with great power comes great responsibility. Didn't know you could get theology from Marvel Comics, did you? 
Isaiah chapter 5, the Lord tells a parable of sorts. Clear back there in the Old Testament, 700 years before Jesus was born, a parable about how a man plants a vineyard and he does all the necessary things to make the vineyard do really well. And so at harvest time, he comes and he expects a good load of good grapes. Instead, it says, it produces bad fruit. Wild grapes, the word means stinking or worthless. So what does he do? He says he's going to destroy the vineyard. And that vineyard is Israel. God put all kinds of good things into Israel. And so he expected from Israel, his people, a good return. Remember that principle. The more you put into something, the more you expect a good return. They were given much. They were adopted by God. They received his covenants and his law. They received the temple worship. They were given God's promises. They were given much. And just like when a man puts a lot of work into a vineyard and expects good grapes, God put a lot into the nation of Israel. So he expected good lives from his people. Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. People who are servants are expected by their master to live like his servants. And if they know that their master is going to return, they should live like it. Here's a second takeaway from this parable. That is that the trust of the master makes us responsible for preparing others. This idea of God expecting something in return from us is all over the Bible. Paul said in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 2, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. Paul was talking there about being an apostle. God had called him to be an apostle. That was a trust from God, a responsibility, a stewardship placed upon him as a servant. And he wanted to be faithful with it. We haven't been given that same thing, but you know what? You and I here this morning have been given something or things, things that we're celebrating, by the way, this weekend. Jesus told another parable in Matthew 25, verse 14. It begins with these words, For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. Here's another one of those servant stories. And in this story, there's also a master. He's gone, but he's going to return. And there are servants that he has left behind who are accountable to him when he does return. And every one of them has been given a trust. The amounts that they are given are different. What each one does, what he's able to accomplish with his money is different. But the master expected from each one of his servants some kind of return based on what he had given to them. And when he returned, he called each servant forward to give an account for what he did. Two of the servants had something more to give back to him, and one servant, remember, did not. That servant was thrown out into the darkness. Once again, God is expecting a return from his servants, from every person. As Jesus sent out the twelve to preach, among the instructions that he gave to them were these words, freely you have received freely give. We would all do well this morning, you and I, 
to do some honest self-inventory. What has God given to you? Is it much? Maybe he's given you wealth. First Timothy 6.17, Paul writes, "Is for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. Maybe he has given to you a very useful spiritual gift. Romans 12, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. God has given you something, and he is expecting from you a proportionate return. All right, let's step back into Luke 12 and look at Peter's question again at the very beginning. Here's why Jesus told this parable. Chapter 12, verse 40, you also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you did not expect. Peter said, Lord, are you telling this parable for us or for all? The answer, yes. Yes. For everyone, but especially for you, Peter. Think about that. Because you, Peter, have been given much. And much is going to be expected from you. Peter had walked on water. Peter had watched a little 12-year-old girl raised from the dead. Peter had watched as Jesus' figure was transformed on a mountaintop. He heard the voice of God from heaven. Peter stood by and watched as Jesus put the ear back on Malchus that Peter had cut off. Jesus, after he was raised from the dead, appeared to Peter. Did Jesus expect much from Peter? Yes. Why? Because Peter had been given much. So he should return much. And it may be by now that you're still wondering, okay, <laughs> what does all this have to do with me on the 4th of July weekend? And I'm glad you asked that. It's this. If we as a people have been given much, then you and I are now responsible for the readiness of the people of this generation and beyond. If the Church of the United States of America has been given much, we can be sure, I dare say, that God expects a lot from us. Amen? We live in a country that was founded on and shaped by biblical principles, and I know that that gets talked down and challenged in a lot of different ways, but nobody can undo the wording of the founding documents and the openly expressed faith of those who worked hard to found this country, who designated the United States government. Nobody has ever managed yet to erase, they've erased a lot, but they haven't erased the words on the front of the Liberty Bell from Leviticus 25.10, that say, proclaim liberty throughout the land and to all the inhabitants thereof. That doesn't make us better than anyone. Those documents, by the way, were written and that government was formed long before yours and my great-great-grandparents were born. 
I didn't make those. And I'm very thankful for those who've made great sacrifice to preserve those things that we've inherited. And I suggest that you and I together have a lot to be thankful for. And regardless of our warts as a nation, we ought to recognize that we have been blessed. We are free to speak. For the most part, we still have that right now. And in some countries, saying the wrong thing can cost you your life. We live in a country where we're free to worship, at least much freer than most countries of the world for now. We live in a country where we are free to earn a living, where we are able to benefit from hard work. We live in a country of great material wealth. And when we use the word poverty, we really need to compare the real poverty of places like Egypt and China and Haiti and India. Twenty years ago, this year, I visited India. By the way, the population of that little country was over a billion then. It's now 1.4 billion people. And those people in southern India might eat only once a day. Most of them that I met owned only one set of clothing. They were dealing with things like tuberculosis and cholera and malaria and foot problems and leprosy and a whole bunch of other diseases that you and I don't even think about. And if you're having a problem understanding what it means to be poor, I suggest to you that you should go visit some country where poverty is the norm and come back with a better appreciation. Not having super fast internet doesn't mean that you're poor. (laughs) Not having electricity or safe water to drink might. We're still a wealthy nation. We live in a country where we have access to technology, to communications, to opportunities, unlike any time before. So if you haven't done it lately, take a step back and recognize how much God has blessed us to be a part of this nation. And then, just like God expected a proportional return from the nation of Israel that he had blessed so much, I want to apply the main point of this parable to ourselves today. Everyone to whom much was given of him, much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand more. Rather than approach this weekend with an attitude of arrogance, what if we humbly were to consider how we should be the people in the world who are the most thankful and who give to God the best return? How about that? What if we were to think of the great responsibility that all of these good things put upon us? Brothers and sisters, rather than being arrogant and rather than panic about how some of these good things seem to be suppressed or are fading, how about the church simply makes the most of the opportunities that we have to help people everywhere to get ready for Jesus' return? This trust that we have inherited makes every one of us responsible. For preparing others. So now we have a choice. We can live like people who live for themselves and who act as though the master's return is a long way off, or we can live like people who know that the master is going to return at any moment. 
And in the verses just before these, Jesus talks about the servant who is ready. Look at verse 35. Stay dressed for action. Keep your lamps burning. And be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table and he will come and serve them. If he comes in the second watch or in the third and finds them awake, blessed are those servants. What a great promise. What a concept unheard of to these people that Jesus was speaking to that the master would come home and take on the role of a servant. I want my master to find me ready. Everyone to whom much was given of him, much will be required. From him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. This morning, God has entrusted a lot to us, hasn't he? He's given us an opportunity to look at his word. He's given us an opportunity to do the things that we do here together. And right now, if you're outside of Jesus Christ, if you've never stepped up and said, I'm going I'm to get into this family life with God's family, you have an opportunity. He is giving you an opportunity right now to make that kind of a decision. I hope that you'll make it. I hope that you'll look at that. You who have already made that, here we have a great opportunity to help other people be ready. And I hope you're feeling that today. That's the message that I see in this parable from Jesus. Let's stand up together. We're going to have a word of prayer. We're going to urge one another onto love and good deeds right now. Let's take God's word and let's decide what we're going to do with it. Father, we thank you for your perfect word. We thank you for your patience with us. It's amazing to me that your work the work of building your kingdom, something so important, something that you have instigated at great cost, you've placed upon us, you've entrusted to us. And we see ourselves in this story. We know that we are to live like your servants. We know that we are to live in expectation of your return. God, forgive us for the times that we have thought otherwise and just served ourselves. Help us to look around and see what it is that you're wanting us to do. We're mindful today of, of how blessed we are as a nation. And Father, we want to use the opportunities that that creates to honor you. Lord, we pray for those who are outside of your family today. Some of them are very near to us. Some of them are our own family members. Some who we see on a regular basis, the people who live on our streets, people around us every day. Father, help us, please, to see how we can bring them closer to you, maybe listening right now. And God, I pray that uh, there will be decisions now that will honor you. We pray together in Jesus' name. Amen.